If you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to look with me at the book of Jude this morning. So if you flip all the way to the right side of your, of your Bible and get almost to the end, it's the book right before the last book of the Bible, Revelation. It's the book right before that. Um, it is, you could think of Jude as like the front porch to the book of Revelation. So it's just 25 verses, but it sets the stage for the last book of the Bible. Um, before I read the verses before you this morning, I'm going to read 17 through 25, and we're going to focus on 20 through 25 this morning. But if you have a copy of this book, I would encourage you to, you know, look at it on your screen or look at it on the page in front of you, um, because I'm going to refer to different verses in this book together uh, with you as we look through it together. Um, so let's start here in general. Uh, you might remember that we're looking through the whole Bible this year, right? Are you getting tired of me saying this? Uh, and in order to understand the entirety of the Bible, we have given you a framework with the numbers three, four, and five. Sound familiar? So let's review. If you want to understand the Bible, three represents what? Three loves. And what are those three loves? Love God, love people, love place. So that's how we were created. We were built to love God, love people, and love place. Genesis 1 and 2 through the rest of the Bible. Three loves. If you understand the Bible, you got to get those three loves. Four stands for what? Four-part story. What's the first part of the story? Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Most of us grew up understanding the Bible thinking about a two-part story, that we look at everything and everyone through the lens of rebellion and redemption. But the Bible actually gives us a four-part story, and we will never understand the real story of the Bible without taking in all four of those parts. Five stands for what? Threads. Now, this one I've only asked you like to give back to me once or twice, so let's try this again. What's the, what's the first thread in the Scriptures? Yes, God has always had a people. He's always been building his church, Genesis to Revelation. Can't understand the Bible if you don't get that thread. What's the second thread? Yes, evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Three, what's the third thread? Grace, that's right. God initiates, God pursues, God saves. Genesis to Revelation is a book of grace. Grace isn't a New Testament idea. Grace is a Bible idea. Four. Yes, Jesus actually did something. He did it. He is a literal Savior. He didn't die to make salvation possible. He died to secure salvation for his people. His death meant the death of death. His life meant eternal life for people like you and me. Uh, and the final thread, what's the fifth one? Yes, all things are moving towards Christ. Everything in the Bible is moving toward Jesus. Everything in your life is moving toward Jesus. Everything in my life, current events, all moving toward Jesus. So there you go. Three, four, and five. If you get that framework down, you're going to understand the Bible. Even if you re read some weird passage in Ezekiel. It's going to be talking about those numbers, three, four, and five, and explaining them to you and to me. That said, let's get a little bit more specific. 
with Jude. Now I'm going to give you a little bit about him uh, after I read and pray and we dive into the sermon itself. But just a little bit about Jude. Um, Jude wrote, it seems like, to a people that were primarily Jewish that actually came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, like what the Old Testament was talking about. And so this book, if you go back and read it, is absolutely marinated in, in, in I mean, like deep marination, okay? We like marination here in East North Carolina and barbecue, but marinated in the Old Testament. So he talks about all kinds of stories in the Old Testament that most of us are not super familiar with that his audience would have been. Really deep. And the last thing I'll say, actually two more things. One thing I'll say to you is more personally, um, Jude has really helped form and shape the way that I understand the Bible. That's going to sound really weird, but I just want to give you a couple examples, all right? Um, when you read the book of Jude, what you find around the fifth verse is something along the lines of this. Do you remember the story of the Exodus? You know, like God's people bring his people out of Egypt. If you read the book of Jude, Jude says that Jesus brought God's people out of exodus, out of, out of captivity. That is mind-blowing to have someone in the first century who's looking at the story in the Old Testament and seeing Christ. That made me think, huh, if I'm going to understand the Old Testament, maybe I should be looking for Jesus in more places too. And secondly, if you look around verse, I don't know, uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there, you're going to find out about this guy named Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam. And he talked about the, get ready for this, second coming of Christ. How about that? So when you start reading this book, it's going to blow your mind if you're interested in understanding the Bible and who Jesus is and how people thought about the Old Testament even in the first century. So here's where we're land. Those, those numbers, three, four, and five, the framework, Jude is actually emphasizing all three loves, all four parts, and all five threads. And what he's doing is he is reminding us that this entire story of the Bible, it's God-centered. And if you want to understand the Bible, you have to realize that God is focusing our attention on him throughout the whole of Scripture, through the loves, through the four parts, and through the five threads. It's all God-centered. All right, that's a long reading introduction, isn't it? So let me read this to you. Jude, I'm going to start in verse 17, but we're going to focus on 20 through 25. So listen to this. This is God's word. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me?
Help us, Lord, to understand your word. Help us to remember that as we sit under your word, you're teaching us about ourselves and you're teaching us about who you are and that you have good news for us. You have good news that we are supposed to live by. So help us to be, help us to anticipate joy, the joy of what it means of being known by you and knowing you more. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to work on us. And we pray this with expectation and hope because we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I hope that we are far enough removed from the election that we can think about it and reflect on it just for a moment. I'm hoping, and if I'm wrong, you can come up to me afterwards and say, Dave, too soon. Okay, that's fine. But I'm going to take a gamble that I hope that we can think about the election for just a brief moment and reflect just a moment. I don't know about you, but as I think back on the election, it was not only exhausting, but I am exhausted. Seemed like everything was about it all the time, everywhere, such that I could hardly have a civil conversation with seemingly anyone. Maybe that doesn't apply to you. Maybe that was just me, but man, it was exhausting. And more than that, something beyond exhaustion, it just didn't bring any real satisfaction. I don't know if it did for you. Didn't bring any satisfaction to me at any level. I say that because at least possibly, maybe, and this is true for me, but maybe not for you. Possibly for you, maybe for you, but definitely for me. Maybe it occupied too much of my time and my attention. Maybe I was too emotionally caught up in it, one way or another. Just maybe. Maybe I was distracted with it all. And I say that just suggesting that maybe you can relate to that in one way or another because... What Jude is doing is hitting the reset button. And what Jude is doing is he is resetting our focus. He wants us to focus on the main thing. And if you're like me, we're so easily distracted. It's not that the election thing isn't important. It's just it isn't that important. What's really important is God. What's really important is his kingdom, the gospel, Jesus. That is what is most important. And that is what Jude is writing to us about. He wants us to focus on what is most important. And he wants us to set our attention and our emotions and our thoughts and our, our drive and our will to think about God and his church and his kingdom and Jesus so that that might be the most important thing to us. So, we're going to look at the book. So, first point is, we're going to look at the book. I'm going to try to summarize it for you. The book is authored by this guy named Jude. Very quickly, he was the half-brother of Jesus, like James, which means he knows Jesus. He, like, literally lived with Jesus, walked around with him, watched him grow, heard him teach, saw him do miracles. He was literally with the Son of God. That should blow your mind. It blows my mind. This guy knows Jesus. Like really knows him. Half brother knows him. 
Jude, in knowing Jesus, writes this book, and I want you to know something else about this book. It is really carefully crafted and put together. Like Jude is some kind of author. This book is very carefully put together. Let me show you what I mean. If you take the first two verses of the book, they talk about being kept, as do verses 24 through 25. So that verses 1 and 2 parallel verse 24 and 25. If you look at verse 3, it parallels verses 20 through 23, which talk about faith. If you look at verse 4, they parallel verses 16 through 19, which talk about a problem. And they continue, every, this verse here parallels this, all the way down to the center of the book, which is verse 11. And verse 11 starts off with, this, with these words, woe to them. As if to say, Jude is bringing to our attention all into focus in the center of this little book, these 25 verses to say, whoa, there's danger, there's danger here. In resetting our focus, he wants us to know that there's danger. Woe to them. Maybe that's me, maybe that's us. I need to pay attention to this. He's saying something is wrong. Something is dangerous. Now you might be wondering, well, what are we going to do about this danger? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the point of what Jude writes about. Look at verse 3. He wants us to contend for the faith. So in the midst of this danger, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to contend for the faith. That's what he says in verse 3. I was going to write to you and talk to you about this, but I decided, no, this is what you need to know. You need to contend for the faith. Now, let's break this down. What does it mean when he says contend? Well, those of you that like to fight, those of you that love to argue, this is not Jude saying, get your arms. It's time to go to war. Pick up your arms. Let's go. Pick up your weapons, let's go. He is not saying to those of us that like to fight, now's your chance. This is not a call to war here. This is not a call to pick up weapons and start, you know, playing spiritual whack-a-mole. Remember that game we used to go to the arcade? Put your money in and there were these holes and moles would come up and you have this big padded thing. You just whack. Now, that's not what he's talking about when he says contend. He's not saying you get to play spiritual whack-a-mole. The reality is, is that we actually, as God's people, are never in a position in which the Word of God is hanging in the balance, and the Word of God hanging in the balance is dependent upon what we do, as if to say, if we don't do the right thing, then the Word of God fails and goes away and is gone forever. Beloved, we just don't have that kind of power. It is not as though contending means that some eternal truth is hanging in the balance and we're the ones that got to make it continue. Think about that. That is impossible. The truthfulness of God's word is what brings us into existence. It's what establishes people like you and me. It's what holds us up. It's not as though we have the power to make it go away. It is eternally true. So when Jude says, contend for the faith, he's not saying fight. He's not calling us to gather our weapons. 
But maybe there's some of you that don't like to fight. If you're like me, you don't like to fight. Maybe there's some of you that need to hear this like I do. Because Jude is, sometimes we can think, you know, good doctrine just doesn't matter that much. So it's not so much that we're on the fighting side of things. Actually, we're on the opposite end where we don't want to think that good teaching or good doctrine matters at all. And when Jude says contend for the faith, he's not saying fight. He's saying, nor is he saying, don't worry about good doctrine. He's actually perhaps even, this could be a wake-up call for some of us, that we need to think about what good teaching is, and we need to understand good doctrine, and we need to follow good doctrine, and learn good doctrine, and we need to think that doctrine is important because it is. When Jude says contend, the word carries the idea of something that is agonizing. In other words, it's something that requires a lot of effort and, and, and there's an idea and a sense and a tone of agonizing. And because I like sports, it made me think of wrestling. Wrestling. When he says contend for the faith, he's saying wrestle with this. Let truth wrestle with you and you wrestle with the truth. And in saying that there's a sense of agonizing and wrestling, I'm actually talking more about jujitsu. You've heard of jujitsu before? You know, the secret of jujitsu is this that you take the other person's movement towards you and redirect it. When someone is advancing on you, what you do is you use their momentum and their force to redirect what they're doing and reposition them. In other words, when Jude says to contend, he's actually telling us, it seems to me, to wrestle like when someone comes at you and and maybe challenges things about the truth, use what they're doing and redirect. It's not like MMA. You know MMA, right? That's when you see people sparring and the purpose is to Use whatever means necessary to subdue the person by force. That's not what Jude's talking about. He is assuming that we are in relationship with people. He is assuming that we are engaged with people close enough so that when they ask questions or when they attack something of the truth or are curious about the truth, that we can take their momentum and take their advancing and redirect it to give them a fresh perspective on the topic that they're asking about or that they disagree with or that they don't like. He is assuming relationship. More on that later. He says, contend for the faith. Now, just so you know, when he talks about contending for the faith, he is not referring to the personal responsibility that all of us have to admit that we all trust in something. We all put our faith in something. That could be science. That could be self. Whatever it is, we all put faith in something. And we all have the responsibility to acknowledge that we put faith in something And the call of God is that we would put our faith in Jesus and what he has done so that when he lived a perfect life, we put our faith and we entrust his perfect life as being lived 
for us. So that when he died on the cross, we see his death as the death of our sin and the payment for our sin, the consequences of our rebellion. And we say, I'm going to believe and entrust what I am to the fact that Jesus paid for me. And his resurrection literally means that it brings me new life, that I will be given resurrection power in that his death and his life literally mean the death of death through Jesus' death. And that life that is beyond death forever, for eternity. And when Jude says contend for the faith, he's not talking about the personal responsibility we have to entrust ourselves to what Jesus has done. Jude is talking about, when he says contend for the faith, that there has been a system, a body of truth, a, a deposit has been made called the faith, and it has been deposited in the word of God. So that when we contend for the truth, excuse me, contend for the faith, what he's saying is God has deposited the truth in the Bible. And we are to wrestle with that and help others wrestle with that. So that we're understanding the body of truth that's in the scripture and we are learning it and living it out. So that our lives are reflective of the reality that we belong to God. You see, truth is a system. Understanding what it means to be a Christian means that we look at the world in, re, in, a, in a radically different way than any other system. It means that we actually believe that God spoke and he created. That is a different starting point than anything else. That we believe God spoke and things came into existence. That we believe that evil is real. That we believe rebellion is real. Because there's an ultimate standard of truth. That we believe redemption is real. And it's powerful. And we believe that we can live our lives each day with the hope of restoration of all things. That heaven and earth will be reunited. That is an example of a way to think about Christianity as a system it's not a new set of morals. Christianity is not a new set of morals as if, it says, as if it's saying just turn over a new leaf. It's a way of understanding and processing reality. And Jude is saying that we need to contend for the faith that God has given us all that we need. And we need to wrestle with that and help others wrestle with that. Because there's this danger I wonder, well, what, why, why do we need to contend for the faith? Well, look at verse 4. It tells you. It tells me. It tells us. Because there are some who have crept in. Look at it in verse 4. It's right there in front of you. For there are some who have crept in unnoticed. And what have they done? Well, they've perverted the grace of God and at some level somehow denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is hitting reset, saying, no, don't get distracted with anything else. Focus on God. Focus on his kingdom. Focus on truth. Focus on the gospel. Because there's some who have perverted grace. And there are some who deny Jesus. That is to say, there are some who want to live as if freedom is doing whatever I want. 
So I'll take a little Jesus here, but then I'll continue to do this over here. So it's Jesus plus something. Maybe it's the way that we smuggle our own little, you know, credit, smuggle, smuggle our faith into that. So, it's, so before God, it's Jesus plus something that I've done. Or maybe it's, maybe it's Jesus minus things that he has said that I don't want to buy into that. And Judah's saying, no, you can't pervert the grace of God and you can't be dismissive of Jesus. He is everything. So true freedom is not taking a little bit from Jesus that you want and adding something to it or looking at Jesus and saying, I really like this about Jesus, but I don't want that, so I'm going to leave that over here. Judah's saying, no, that's the danger. We need Jesus. And true freedom is finding the right restrictions. True freedom is finding the appropriate restrictions for how we were designed and how we're made. We can boil it down to this. This at least has helped me over the years. A, a guy that lived a long, long time ago said something to this effect. Love God and do what you will. You know what it means to follow Christ? To love his church? To contend for the faith? Love God and do what you will. Because if you love God, then you are putting what he wants first. It means that you are finding your desires in God. I am finding my desires met in him for everything. And if I'm loving God with all that I am, with my mind, with my heart, with my soul, with my strength, if I'm loving him with all that I am, then he will shape the rest of my decisions. So that my life really will look like loving God and then doing what I will. Because I'm trusting that loving God is supreme above everything and that will shape my decisions, shape my feelings, shape my outlook, shape my hopes, help me understand my failures. That in loving him, it shapes how I do everything else. Well, that in essence is the book. Jude, very carefully crafted and put together. And the point of it is to contend for the faith because there are some who pervert the gospel and deny Christ in some way. Well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for me in my life? What does that mean for my job? What does it mean as I leave this building? What does it mean for me this week when I work? What does it mean? What does this mean for me? How in the world do I contend for the faith? How can I be on guard? How can I be reset to put first the kingdom of God? So what? Well, verses 20 through 25 are telling us how we are to contend for the faith in our everyday lives. So I got two things for you here. You're thinking about so what? Jude says all this stuff. Well, what does that mean for me? Well, it means two things. Here's the so what. Number one, don't just stand there do something. Look at verse 20 and 21 and 22 and 23. Don't just stand there. Do something. Here's what you need to do. Build and remember. So let's dive into this. Look at what Jude says. God tells us through Jude, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. Do you see that? Paralleling verse 3, right? 
Here it is. We're to contend for the faith that's been delivered. Oh, here we go. This is what we need to do. We need to build ourselves up on this body of truth. It's most holy. It's set apart. It's true. It changes our lives. Everything. Build ourselves up on truth. That means we got to know it. We got to continue to study it. We got to understand it. We got to implement it into our lives. How in the world can I build myself up on top of what God has given, on top of truth? How can I start with truth and build my life around it? You ready? Pray. That's what he says. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Throughout this year, one of the things that we've tried to emphasize over and over is maybe all this stuff that's happened with the virus Maybe one of the applications for us is that God is stripping down the church. And he's just helping us realize that we have prioritized an awful lot of things that don't really matter. Because what really matters is something that we often neglect and don't do. Pray. So if you want to build yourself up on truth, if I want to build myself up on truth, guess what we need to do? Like literally pray. Like pray. Open your mouth and talk to God. Pray. Pray. If you need to know where to start, we have a prayer chain that we send out, not necessarily daily, but it's always there when new things come out. If you don't know where to start, start there. Things in our church that need prayer. You can pray through that list. You can take one item on that list and pray it. You can start with a 10-second prayer. Your prayer doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be your words saying them to God. That's it. Just talk to God. Prayer. Give everything to God. Pray. Second, keep yourself in the love of God. Look at what Jude says. Keep yourself in the love of God. How in the world can I keep myself in the love of God? Here's what you have to remember. You love God because he first loved you. Jude starts off saying that we were called by the love of God and kept by the love of God in the first couple of verses, and now he's telling us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Well, how can I keep myself in the love of God? I have to constantly remind myself that he loved me first. That every day I have to remind myself it's not what I have done to earn God's love. He didn't look at me and say, I love you because I saw what you were going to do. He didn't look at me and say, Dave, I saw that you were going to want to go into the ministry one day. Therefore, I decided to love you. God loves me and loves you because he loves you. Not what he can get out of you. Take that deep into your heart and into your mind To keep yourself in the love of God is to run to the cross. It's to remember every day that Christ died for you, for me. That God loved you before you were even born. And then he says this. Not only pray, not only keep yourself in the love of God, but also remember mercy. Wait. Pray, keep yourselves in the love of God, and wait. Wait for the return of Christ. Wait for the mercy upon Christ's return in which you will live forever. That means to build yourself up on truth means you pray, you remind yourself all the time that God loves you, and you know that your destiny is certain, that Christ is coming back and he is going to restore all things. 
When he comes back, his mercy will encompass everything about us, and we will live with him forever. And then if you look in verse 22 and 23, he says, oh yeah, but remember this mercy toward others as well. And this is where we start getting real tactile on the idea of contending for the faith and, you know, like wrestling jujitsu, engaging with people, wrestling with truth, yourself, and also helping other people. Look at 22 and 23. In living, in waiting on the mercy of Christ to come, we are therefore able to look at others, verses 22 and 23, and be merciful to them. And that means that there are some that you need to be merciful in such a way that you are very, very gentle. Because there's some that are going to doubt. You might come into contact with people who doubt. You may have doubt yourself. Guess what? Be gentle. Be gentle. You might even run into those who are so brazenly opposed to who God is that you need to be very bold. That's the second type of situation we can be in. It's not just that we have to be gentle. It's that sometimes we have to be bold. Sometimes we have to be courageous when we are talking to people about truth. You can't just always sit there when things are being said that you know are not true. Now, of course, you have to have the relational capacity to say something, but there are times in which you've got to be bold, and I have to be bold, and we have to be bold to say, that's not true, this is true. And then look at the third category, if you will. Sometimes we've got to be really gentle. Sometimes we've got to be really bold. But third, sometimes we've got to be really cautious. Jude says we, when we contend with others, sometimes we do so with fear because we see the garment stained and defiled by sin. What he's, without going into all the detail about Old Testament imagery, this is what he's saying. Look, there are some people you're going to come in contact with that really are sensitive and they doubt and it's really troubling them. And you need to be gentle. There are others that are really just full on anti-truth. And guess what? Sometimes you got to be bold because that's the only thing that's going to wake them up. But other times when you come in contact with people, you might realize the sin that they deal with is the same sin you struggle with. So as much as you want to help them, beware. Have a sense of fear about you knowing that were it not for the grace of God, you would continue in the same thing or by the grace of God, you're fighting the same thing. So that as you are wrestling and contending, you're doing so in a way that is relationally appropriate. And you don't just have a one size fits all for everything. But you have a Savior that can address all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. You see, the perfect example and illustration of this, of these three things, is is Jesus. Just think about how he deals with Peter. You remember, as Jesus would preach the gospel to the disciples and help, help them grow in their understanding of the gospel and living out the gospel, you do realize that there were times in which Peter felt as though You know, he heard clearly what Jesus told him to do, and yet he didn't do it. Like, hey, y'all wait here while I go and pray. And Peter and the others fell asleep. And you know they felt guilty about that. And you know what Jesus said in a very gentle way? The flesh is weak. 
but the spirit is strong. Gentle, gentle. There were other times where Peter was trying to tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, you'll need to go to the cross. Remember what Jesus said to him? Pretty bold, get behind me, Satan. How about that? Jesus calls you Satan. That's pretty bold. Do you think that shocked Peter? Uh, yes. Did Peter need it right between the eyes? Yes. How about this with Peter when Jesus would deal with him? Do you remember the time when Peter was so confident in himself that Jesus said to him, hey, Peter, just want you to know here, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you, meaning shake you through the experience, if you have a colander, shake you in your life through this colander, hoping you're going to fall through the squares, that these life circumstances, you'll just sink right through. But I've prayed for you, Peter. Jesus has done each one of these with Peter and with us. And if we look at our own lives, my hunch is there probably have been people in your life who you are where you are today because they were gentle with you when you were doubting. My hunch is you probably have other people in your life in which they were just straight up, right between the eyes, bold with you. And you probably have others in your life who can sympathize and relate so well with struggles that you have. And yet they can still speak truth into you saying, hey, I struggle with the same thing. Don't just stand there. Do something. Build yourself up on truth. Pray. Keep yourself in the love of God and wait for the return of Christ. And look forward to that. And be merciful to others. Sometimes be gentle. Sometimes be bold. Sometimes be cautious. Here's the second thing. So don't just stand there, do something. Here's the second one. Don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> For those of you that are exhausted and weary and worn out, don't just do something, stand there. Look at verse 24 and 25. This is what we call a doxology. This is where... Jude is encouraging us to ascribe glory to God. So he's saying, come on, praise God, worship God, stand in awe of who he is. Give him glory, ascribe glory to God. Don't do anything, just worship, praise him. Here's what a doxology is. A doxology tells you what God has done and will do and connects that with how he does it. So there, look at verse 24 and 25. This is what God has done and will do. He will keep you from stumbling. He will present you faultless before God. And he will do that with great joy. That is what God has done, and that is what he will do. And how does he do that? He does that through displaying his glory. He does that through showing us his majesty, his transcendence. No one would love rebels and enemies like me and you except God. How does he do those things? He does it because he has power to do it. How does he do it? 
does it because he has all authority. No one can challenge whatever God wants to do. All of this, and I know we need to stop. I wish I could go on and on and on about this because these verses are incredible about what God does in keeping us from stumbling and presenting us faultless and that bringing him joy. Do you ever think about God in that way? All of this is trying to get us to this point where we recognize more deeply and more quickly Do you realize how, do you real? I'll say it personally. If I could lose my relationship with God, I would. Do you get that? Jesus is able to keep us from stumbling. He is able to present us faultless, and it brings him great joy. In other words, if I was left to myself, I would lose my entire relationship with God. If I could lose it, I would. If you could lose it, you would. But there is Jesus. And he is the one that keeps us from stumbling. He is the one that will present us faultless. We're not gonna go to God and be like, hey God, look at how great I am. I mean, Jesus did a little bit, but I did this. Or Jesus did a lot, but I added this little part to him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus presents us faultless. And all of that brings God great joy. And all of that displays who God is before now, now, and forever. He's not changing. Don't you see how this affects how we're understanding this whole book? It's really hard to contend for the faith, a.k.a. playing spiritual whack-a-mole, if we're constantly aware of the fact that apart from Jesus, we'd lose everything, isn't it? To have a sense that Jesus is keeping me every single day and will present me one day and that will bring him joy dramatically changes how I talk about him to people that come into my life. Jude is telling us God has done it He gets all the credit. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you uttered those words from the cross. It is finished. That we might know that our place before God today is secure and will not change. We thank you for this meal, for it enables us to taste and to see that you are good. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work the gospel deeper into us, that we might live our lives in faith, that we might trust you, Jesus, and what you have done throughout every circumstance, every decision, everything on our calendar, all the time, that you might get glory, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Beloved, if you would stand. I want you to know that God intends to bless you because of what Jesus has done. So I'm going to declare this blessing that is found in God's word. If you want to hold out your hands as if to receive it, you're welcome to do so. Remember, Christian worship is about centering who we are on God. It's a God-centered message, not man-centered. Our lives are about what God has done and what he will do.
So listen to this. The Lord your God is a mighty God. He is in your midst and he will save you. This week he will rejoice over you with gladness. More than likely he will quiet you with his love. And in the age to come forever and ever, he will exult over you and me with loud singing. Not because we're so great, but our Christ is. Beloved, go in peace. Amen.